Well, tonight we come to the fourth and final study in Deuteronomy 10 and verse 12. I chose that passage as our summer meditation and originally try to connect it with Romans 12, 1 and 2 because I think there's real unity of theme between those two exhortations. Moses is telling Israel as they are on the threshold of entering into the land of promise of the things that the Lord requires of them and the things the Lord requires of them particularly in the light of what great things God has done for them and so um, it's really by his mercies that he gives this exhortation Uh, this exhortation that says now Israel what does Yahweh your God require of you but to fear Yahweh your God to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Now, I said this is the last one we're going to do because I'm not really going to go into the final statement about the commandments of the keeping of the commandments of God because, quite frankly, in a 40-year ministry, however long it's been that I've been here in Pine Bush, I think I've addressed the law of God with some degree of fullness and adequacy in many series of messages and many sermons and many uh, portions of God's word. And so I don't think you are bereft of information about the subject of the commandments of God and our obedience to them. It's what we do all the time. What I wanted to do in looking at this picture is really to see that the matter of the things that God requires of us is not just commandments. It's not just do this and don't do that. Uh, There's a wider ethic, a wider standard of values and morality that Scripture sets before us that's to be seen in other ways than just the commandments of God. I think there was a time in my Christian life that I thought the Ten Commandments was the sum of all moral duty. And though it is a good summary is not the summary of everything. It's a summary of quite a bit, but not a summary of everything. Um, I know there's efforts made in the larger catechism of the Westminster Divines uh, to take the commandments of God and to give something of a great distillation in which all moral duty is set before you. What are the things that are required by the first commandment and the second commandment all the way to the tenth commandment? And what are the things that are forbidden? in each of those commandments. And so you can find drunkenness, for instance, the sin of drunkenness. Where is that found? Well, you don't think offhand. It's, this, it's the, um, you know, any, any one of the ten. But they say, well, adultery. You get drunk and you might, have, you might just find yourself in someone else's bed and commit an immoral act of, in, 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 in drunkenness. Why they didn't put that under the first one? You could kill somebody also when you're drunk. A lot of myriad ills could happen when you are drunk with wine or, or strong drink. Um, but they find a way to put all, the, all duties, all moral duties, under those Ten Commandments. But uh, I don't think the Scripture labors to go in that direction. It, it gives us those commandments as great pivots around which we understand the things that God has said are to be honored and viewed as sacred in His sight. His, his being have no other gods before me. His uh, worship, don't make any graven image unto yourself. His name, um, do not bear the name of the Lord your God in vain. His 
day of worship. Uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Uh, the sanctity that God sets around human life. That you shall not murder. Or marriage in the sexual union. You shall not commit adultery. Uh, the sanctity of private property. You shall not steal. Uh, the sanctity of um, the truth, which is that you shall not bear false witness. And then the sanctity, we might say, of the inner life. You don't covet with anything but your inner life, your heart, your desires. Even that, God says, is sacred and to be kept in an honorable fashion unto him. And so those are all the, the great uh, markers in which we see moral duty really revolving around it. But yet there are these other things that I don't know that you can readily put under the Ten Commandments. And those are the things I'd look to point out to you. Now, loving God, Jesus says all the commandments hang upon this. The great commandments of loving the Lord your God with heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. But this is emphasizes the central duty. Again, the list of five, the third, is usually the central duty that's set before us. And I look to present it to you in that way. That loving God is the middle concern. Everything revolves around uh, the love of God. But there's not only the love of God that's required of you, but to fear the Lord. Thus it takes seriously his words when God speaks. When we hear the voice of God, we render compliance with his words, his instruction. We take it to heart. Yes, we obey the, the laws, the commands, the do this and don't do that. But we also fear in the light of what he's made known about himself. Um, we fear in the light of his great holiness, in the light of his great majesty, his great sovereignty, his justice, all of his attributes. That, that it, it elicits a response in us of godly fear because we stand in the presence of the living God, whether we realize it or not, because in him we live and move and have our being. And nothing is detached from him. All life centers in him. And so all life is the center in the presence of God, in which our response is a response of godly fear when his voice addresses us and speaks to us as it does in his words. And then there's the call to walk in all of his ways. And that's the picture of observing how God acts, the things that God does. Uh, Jesus says, uh, you to love one another as I have loved you. He set out an example that we should follow in his steps. So the Lord's ways are, are mercy and truth, we saw in the scriptures. His ways are ways of, 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 of justice and of kindness and of love. Uh, and all these ways that we behold in God, uh, we are to be those things as he is those things. Be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. Be imitators of God as beloved children. See his ways. Follow his ways. And then there are the... Um, Things we're going to look at tonight, which in the fourth of the statements is that we are to, to um, serve the Lord. This this matter of serving the Lord with your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And so tonight we're going to look at this matter of serving God and just what it means to serve God. Well, the word that's used in the Hebrew, uh, the word avad or abad, depending on how you um, view it as a bet or a vet, anyway, how you uh, pronounce that Hebrew letter. Um, it's a word that actually begins in Scripture in the description of um, God's own works. That God is a God who worked in the creation of the universe. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Lord viewed all the, the works of his hands, all the things that he's made. Uh, work is attributed to God. God is a God who labored in the work of creation, labors in the works of uh, providence and of the preservation and providing for her, his creation. God is the God who works salvation in the midst of the earth. God is a God who works, and we behold his mighty works, and we're called to... Um, we're called to uh, see the, his majestic works, to take note of them, uh, to delight ourselves in his works, in the works of his hands, to behold uh, what he has done in creation, in, in grace, and in salvation, and to take note of the God who works, and works uh, for our good, and works righteousness in the world, and works, uh, works of mercy and grace. And uh, So we, look at a, we serve a God who is a working God. And we who are made in his image and likeness are called upon to be a people who work. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. The seventh day shall be a day of Sabbath rest. Why? For the Lord your God worked six days and in the seventh day he rested. Therefore, the Lord commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And so as images of God, we carry out cycles of labor and uh, rest as God. A creation uh, set, that, set out that pattern. And um, our weekly cycle should be a cycle of working and of resting. And even in the day of rest, it's a day of other kinds of work, other kinds of labor. We are a people created to work. And that idea of working is a matter of service, that we're called upon to do works that God has commanded us as acts of service unto him. In other words, our work as people is never secular. It's never, well, we have our secular jobs that we work at as people, and then we do our spiritual work on the side or uh, on Sundays, and then that's work that's done for God. All the work of our hands is to be done for the glory and honor of the Lord. When God placed Adam in the Garden of Eden, he made him to work in the garden. He gave him the work to labor and to keep the garden. And that work of God is used of man's labor in the Garden of Eden. He was to keep the garden or tend the garden. I think sometimes it's translated as to tend. But it's a work he's called upon to do. He's to be actively, energetically doing the work uh, that God's commanded him to do and to do it with joy and delight and reverence towards God and desire to please the God who's given, given him these tasks to perform. You see, work is not a matter of something that entered into the world as a result of the fall. I was just talking to somebody along these lines who seemed to think, well, work is a matter of something you got to do because we're in a fallen world. And so work was never something God's original design. I guess we thought we were just made to just sort of sit around and kick up our feet and to enjoy um, things with the, you know, throwing out a fishing line or something. Um, but work was something he didn't think was something that's bound up in the creative act of God. Again, the working God made his image who are to be involved in labor or to work. Now, the difference between the pre-fall and the post-fall condition with respect to labor is that before the fall, there were no briars and thorns. There were no thistles. There was no sweat of his brow. There was no opposition that the earth gave to the efforts of the man to do the work of cultivating the garden, working and keeping the garden. The earth was in full compliance. And then when sin entered into the world, the curse entered into the world. Curse is the ground for your sake. Now, it doesn't mean, Adam, you are now going to be given a, a new duty you never had before to, to work and to labor and to tend and to keep the garden. It's just, 
it's not going to be so easy from this time forward. All of life is not as easy as it would have been if sin had not entered into the world. And um, so it's not labor that's uh, a result of the fall. Labor is a result of our image, uh, image-bearing identity. And so we are called upon to do God's will. And our labor is not just uh, the labor of uh, religious labor, though the word for labor is used for ministering priests as they carried out their work in the tabernacle and later the temple. Um, they worked at the work of whatever they were given to do. The priests and the Levites, uh, some were given for the purposes, some were given the tasks, and they were given cycles in which they give, gave uh, the task when their hour had come, like Zacharias. He had, uh, the, you know, it was a cyclical thing. When the, the, the priests and the Levites would come into the temple and they would do the labors that they were required to do, and it might be that they were there to burn incense, it might be that they were there to... Um, light the menorah lamp to change the, the loaves of bread on the, uh, the table of the presence. It might be that they were uh, doing the work of uh, the burnt offerings. It might be they were doing a multitude of works in uh, um, setting up and tearing down and cleaning and you're doing all the things that were necessary to do for the upkeep of the tabernacle and later uh, the temple. Their works of carrying the tabernacle, breaking it down and carrying it as Israel was making their advance and march in the wilderness and then setting it back up again. Uh, those were all things that the Levites were called to do to assist the priests in their work. And those, that was labor. That was the work that they were given to do. That was work that was commanded by God. The people who were to do those tasks were appointed by God for that work. And they carried out that work in obedience and also in an act of reverence, of worship, uh, to do the work as unto the Lord. they They were serving the Lord. The prophets were called upon to be servants or workers in the bringing of the message that God gave to them. They were workers in the vineyard or workers in the work of bringing God's word to Israel. And they, called, uh, uh, they were called uh, my servants the prophets, my workers the prophets. They were involved in doing the work that God had commanded them and committed uh, to them to do. Uh, those who were ministering in the uh, service of song when David appointed that were also called workers. They were workers in that capacity. But it's not just religious work. It's not just that um, this call to um, serve the Lord with all our heart and with all our soul is religious service. Because again, it's tending gardens that's part of service. It's the service that uh, the word is used, in fact, for Israel's service under Pharaoh's taskmasters. As they, with their lashes, would caused the people to do the bidding of the king of Egypt. Uh, They were slaves and servants to Pharaoh. And they did the work that Pharaoh appointed to them. And that was hard work and harsh work. And uh, it was work that uh, they cried unto God under the labors of that harsh regime of of, uh, tyranny uh, in Egypt. And God took them out of Egypt. And interesting, in the taking them out of Egypt, you know what he said? He said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go that they may, and we usually translate it, worship me in the wilderness. But actually it's the same word for serve. They may 
commit themselves to the tasks that I will give them to do when I bring them out of Egypt and I bring them on eagle's wings to myself and I assign to them their work. I assign to them their labors. I tell them what they are to be doing. That is to serve the Lord. And that's before the tabernacle was even built. Yes, they were to probably have a response to God's revelation of his glory on Mount Sinai, or his revelation of his glory when he opened up the Red Sea and they passed through on dry land. I'm sure that there was a, a, a response of amazement and wonder and perhaps praise and thanksgiving and joyful celebration before the presence of the Lord. Uh, but in all of God's dealings with them, uh, they were to be his servants. They were to be carrying out his word and be, they, they were to be doing his will. In other words, every act of life is an act of service. There's no such thing as religious and non-religious, secular and religious. Um, all of life is to be rendered as a service unto God. And so Paul could say in the New Testament, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Work the works of God to his glory. When Paul would instruct the uh, slaves in Colossae, let's uh, turn to that passage because it's one of the good ones and I haven't looked at it with you in a while. So let's go to Colossians, and I believe it's chapter 3. Well, Paul's directing slaves in their responsibility towards their masters. And again, it's a troubling thing that slavery existed in the ancient world. It existed even when the Christian gospel began to seize hearts. But um, the slaves had a responsibility as the Lord's free people, as those who've been liberated to be his servants. Ultimately, they were God's servants and not the servants of any earthly master. And in the service they had to their earthly master, they were to testify of the grace of the gospel. They were to testify of the power of the gospel in the way they related to their masters. And so bond servants are said in verse 22 of chapter 3, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. In other words, when their eyes on you, you get doing the work they gave you to do. And then when their eyes off of you, then you go and uh, you know get out the your cell phone and you go start looking up uh, you know things on Google <laughs> you don't you, you don't depart from your work you know get up the solitaire and you know play some solitaire no you're not to do it with eye service as men pleasers but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord he says uh, whatever you do work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward you are serving the Lord Christ. You are working for the sake of Christ, for the service of Christ. You recognize, really, I'm not being owned by this man. I mean, ultimately speaking, nobody owns another man. I mean, the law may say this is permissible, but every Christian knows in the depths of his heart is impermissible. I mean, man was made to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air he was not created to have dominion over other people nobody was made to own another person that's simply something that resulted from the fall and it's not something that has anything to do really with God's design now again God doesn't obliterate it automatically sadly to say hardness of heart in people's um, uh, experience uh, 
you know, which is the reason God said he permitted divorce. He permitted all these Old Testament regularities with reference to the marriage institution. And Jesus says from the beginning it was not so. This was not God's design. It was never meant to be that way. God uh, permitted it for the hardness of your heart. Sad to say, the hardness of people's hearts have been so great that even in 19th century America, you'd think we would have shed those ideas of owning people. It, it didn't even get shed in Christian America, where churches that preach the gospel, and yet people thought they found in this passage something that justified slavery. And really it doesn't. It says you're not the servants of men, you're the servants of Christ. Yeah, you know, they, they're your bond slaves in terms of the law that you live under in the nation. But that doesn't mean those laws are just. That doesn't mean those laws are right. But you're to take the opportunity in that situation to glorify the one who truly owns you. The one who purchased you at the price of the shedding of his own blood. He owns you. And you're his servant. You're not the servants of men. You serve the Lord Christ. And so, if a slave can carry out his work to the glory of God as the servant of Christ, serving Christ in that situation. There's not a situation you can't serve Christ. There's not a situation you can say, well, this is not part of what the, the tasks that God has given me to perform. It's just motherhood, and that's a drudgery. No. It's God's appointed task for you when you got a child and a child needs the changing of the diaper now the husband ought to be doing his part as well in the caring for the child it should be something that is not just laid upon the shoulders of a woman but no woman, no man even in the task of changing a baby's dirty diaper is serving the Lord this is God's gift to me this is God's work for me And I do it with a song in my heart. I do it with praise in my soul for the living and true God. It's an act of service. It's an act in that sense of worship. It's part of the liturgy of life. It's part of the way in which God has called us to live before his presence. And I think that's exactly what Moses is telling Israel This is what the Lord requires of you. You are to be his servant in whatever you're given to do. In whatever your responsibilities are. You're to be serving him while you're wandering in the wilderness. Although they're at the end of that part. You're to be serving the Lord as you cross over the Jordan. You're to be serving the Lord as you circumcise your children. You're to be serving the Lord as you keep the Passover. You're to be serving the Lord as you go up against the Canaanites. You're to be serving the Lord as you enter into the land, as you take possession of the inheritance that God's given you, and as you farm the land, as you, in everything, in all of life. You're to be serving Him. And all the work that God's given you to do, you embrace it as something that's a holy task that you have been given. And you carry it out with a sense of obligation to the living God. You're serving Him in whatever you are given to do. And then if you go back to chapter 10 and see the way in which this service is to be rendered to the Lord. Again, it's the service of doing whatever you're given to do. 
whatever it is your responsibility to do. You are to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, again, we look at these words, with all your heart and with all your soul, and the tendency is, in 21st century America, to put on those words sort of modern meanings, the things that we tend to mean when we talk about the heart or when we talk about the soul. The problem is, the way we talk about these things today is very different from the way they're talked about in the Bible and the way the Bible means them. When we think of the heart today, and we usually think of the emotions. Give your heart to God. and That's an expression of some kind of emotional reaction or emotional response. But actually the emotions in what would be called Hebrew physiognomy is the way in which the Hebrews would look at the human body and assign um, things to it. That the heart was not the organ of emotion or the place in which emotions were registered in the human body. It was a bit lower. It was a bit deeper. It was the kidneys. It was the, it was the guts that entered into the emotions. Uh, the Lord tries the reins, the kidneys. Uh, really enters in uh, to uh, this matter of compassion. It's a word that speaks of uh, having compassion. It's really from the gut. It's bringing up something, an emotion, that really is a lot lower, a lot deeper in the body that brings forth that emotion. That's how the Hebrews viewed it. They didn't view it as something that came from the heart. It came from up from something deeper within our bodies. And so the heart actually involved not only emotion. Again, that would be more the kidneys, it would be more the guts, the innards, the inner parts uh, that would be spoken of. But it was the central center of our consciousness, the center of our awareness. It would be what we would think of today when we speak about uh, someone's ego. Uh, it, it, it's somebody's personality. It, it would be emanating from um, the inner life that is registering our thoughts as well as our feelings. Um, you think with the heart in biblical terminology that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened is a New Testament expression of the thing. The heart has eyes. The heart has awareness. It has cognition. It has an ability to see and reason and think. Um, So it's more than just the emotions. We serve the Lord with an intelligence of understanding. Of an understanding of who this God is. Of what he has done for us. The things that he has given us. The things he requires of us. And with an intelligent response of the mind. As well as the rest of our being. We render the service that God requires of us. It's all that is within me. Bless his holy name. That's actually uh, what the 103rd Psalm speaks about the soul. But the soul likewise. Again, sometimes we think of the soul as that part of us that will go and be with Christ when we die. Now, I know we go to be with Christ when we die, but I, I know it's not with our bodies, but I'm not sure it's just to be thought of as our souls. Our souls go to heaven and separate from our bodies. Um, the spirits of just men made perfect are spoken about in scripture 
I'm trying to think. Uh, I guess the souls of those that have been beheaded for Jesus' sake are seen in the throne room in the book of Revelation. So sometimes the soul is used in that way. But actually the soul, in the Hebrew word that's used for it, at least in the Old Testament, has more the notion of the inner life that is carried out in the body. Because we were never designed by our designer to exist apart from our bodies. Death was not supposed to be part of the equation. We were supposed to live with God and draw from the life of God and eat the tree of the knowledge of uh, the tree of life uh, that was in the midst of the garden and have eternal life before God in our bodily existence, not just our soulless existence. But um, when God made the creatures, uh, he made them to be living souls. The sea brought forth uh, the sea creatures and uh, they were said to be living creatures, living souls. It's the livingness of the human being that makes us different from that which is inanimate. We have the animation uh, that interestingly enough is not just from God's words saying let the sea bring forth or let the land bring forth these creatures. There's an animation that comes directly from the hand of God in the picture of creation that's seen in Genesis 2 where God formed the body out of dust or clay and breathed into him the breath of life and man became a living creature. He became a living creature. Actually the, the, the word for soul in the Hebrew it refers to the neck. It, it has reference to the neck, the place from which we breathe out and we breathe in. There's, there's life. The breath of life has come into us and we have become living creatures. We become living souls. And we have breath that goes in and breath that goes out. And the thought is that with every living breath, with every breath we take, we are his servants. We're to serve him with all our soul with all the life that God has given us with every ounce of life with every ounce of strength that God has given us we're to render our service to his name in whatever he's given us to do whether directly spiritual or quote religious or in the normal things of life and the mundane stuff of life we are his servants that's who we are that's our identity and that service is to be rendered to him with all our heart and with all our soul. It's interesting in the place that I believe is a counterpart to this in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, the call is that by the mercies of God, he exhorted the Roman Christians to present what? Their souls? Their disembodied beings to the Lord? And that's what we would think. Give your soul to God. Give your mind to God. Give your heart to God. Give your inner life to God. Now that's all appropriate and that's all true. I won't say don't do all that. But Paul doesn't do that. He says render your bodies. Render your bodies. Actually it's present your bodies. Present your bodies living sacrifice unto God. The hand, the eyes, the feet, the tongue, the ears. Every part of our bodies were to render as his servants. To be used for his glory. All that is within me, all that is without me, all that I am and how God has, God has constructed me and put, him, put me together. I'm to render this service to him, which is our reasonable service. Um, presenting our bodies. And it's interesting, the language of servitude is used earlier on in chapter 6 of Romans also with respect to our bodies. This whole matter of serving the Lord has a concrete bodily um, reference. It's what we do. 
with our eyes and ears and tongues and feet and hands that determined the reality of our servitude. And Paul says at one time, just like the Israelites were servants to the tyrant in Egypt, one time we were servants to the tyrant of sin. Sin once dominated us, sin once controlled us, sin once made us to be its slaves. He says, do you not know, in verse 16 of Romans 6, that if you present yourselves, again, present your bodies in Romans 12, present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, now you've signed on to servitude. That's what you've done. You've signed on to servitude. That person thinks that's what you exist for. You exist to serve me. When you present yourselves as slaves, people are going to treat you like slaves. Well, what we once did was, I'm sorry, he goes on to say, uh, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, you once presented yourselves to sin as slaves. and said, Master Sin, you are Lord of me. You can command me and demand of me, and I willingly, promptly, practically, physically, engage in the service you seek of me. You were once slaves of sin. He says, now you become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, having been set free from sin and become slaves of righteousness. And just as that servitude to sin was real, it was practical, it was sin demanded of us, our mouths to speak lies, demanded us, our tongue to spread gossip, to talebear, to, to demean other people, to wound other people with our words, to cut and slice and, and, and wreak havoc in people's lives. And all the danger, all the, the um, chaos that the tongue can produce. Sin said, tongue, get to work. And he said, we're working in your service, sin, to use our tongues for the ends that you designed. And we will wield our tongues in evil, wicked ways with corrupt speech and lying speech and harsh and, uh, and uh, the kind of speech that just simply will ruin reputations. I'll slander. I'll lie. I'll, again, that practical way. Give me your eyes to behold uh, things you shouldn't be seeing. Um, your, your ears to hear things you shouldn't be listening to. And we said, yes, whatever you want of me, sin. You have my eyes. You have my ears. You have my hands. You have my feet. You have my being to be under your dominion, under your mastery. But in the same way, you have now become obedient to the heart, to the teaching to which you were committed, the gospel teaching, and you've been set free from sin and you've become slaves of righteousness. Now, righteousness is in control. The God who commands righteousness is in control. And he says, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, again, your members, your bodily members, that's what he's talking about. You presented them as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Present your bodies. 
You serve the Lord in the body. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Glorify God in your bodies. And so the service that we're to give to God is very practical. It's the daily service we're to do with the tasks that we have been given with all of our being. With every member of our body, with every sentiment of our soul, with everything that is within us, all that we are, in our minds, in our heart, in our emotions, in our bodily life. Uh, this is the service we are called upon to render. What does the Lord your God require of you? But you serve Him. That you identify yourselves as His servants. Not just as missionaries, not just as preachers. Not just as church leaders, as a Christian. You are his servants. You've been called to his service. And whatever you are to do in any capacity of life, in your jobs at work, in your relationships with other people, in your relationships to folks in the church, in your relationships as witnesses of the truth of the gospel, out in the world, you're always a servant. You're always a servant. You know, Paul could speak of... uh, Times in which, as is the servant of, of Christ, he magnified his ministry. He's always conscious. I'm God's servant. Wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, there's never a vacation from being a servant of God. There's never a vacation from us being servants of God in the capacity in which we're called to serve the Lord in the gospel. And this is part of what God requires of us. This is part of the things that constitute our reasonable service. So there's really a a well-rounded understanding that Moses teaches the people of Israel to possess with respect to who and what they are as those who have been redeemed by the Lord and brought on eagle's wings to himself, made to be his covenant people, who can look back at the great things that God has done for them and their being redeemed from Egyptian bondage and being brought unto this living God. At the the heart of it, the center of it, is to love him. And around that central duty, there is the the fear of him. There is the understanding of his ways and walking in his ways. There's the serving of him with all of our heart and with all of our soul. And And then he says all that. And then he brings in the commandments. Yeah, by the way, also, there is this matter of commandment keeping. Not an option. Not something you can dispense with. Not something you say, we're doing all this other stuff, we have no time for commandment keeping. No, no. We're to be keeping his commandments. But we're not just to be keeping his commandments. We're to recognize that our relationship to God is much bigger and much broader. There's a whole wealth of instruction that scripture gives us that sets before us love and fear and his ways and his service that also enters into our understanding of what life is to be how life is to be lived before God as his people the things that constitute a reasonable service the things which the Lord requires of us Well, I hope that's been helpful. We've come to an end of it. And one of the reasons I'm bringing it to an end is I'm really excited about getting back into Jeremiah, which God willing will start to do next Lord's Day evening.
So let's commit our thoughts to the Lord as we go to Him in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this portion of Your Word and the well-rounded perspective it gives us on how to live our lives before You. And we pray we would factor each of these things into our life and understanding. That, Lord, we would excel in loving You. We would excel in seeking your fear and seeking to learn and walk in your ways and seeking to serve you with all of our heart and soul that we would be keeping your commandments and statutes and your judgments so teach us these things we pray and give us to be receptive students to all that you require of us that lord we would render to you that reasonable service that accords with what's right and proper and that nothing else should be the standard to which we seek. So hear our prayers, bless your people, strengthen us in these things and we pray you'd help us to, even in this coming week, come to acknowledge the reality of who and what we are as the servants of the living God And then to render that service in whatever we are given to do with all of our heart and with all of our soul. So hear our prayers. Bless your people. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.